I think that I find all, all bits of land totally fascinating. But I think what captivates me is how can I understand it and how can I make it work? Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This is the third episode in our series, The Long Run, which looks at creating and evolving, where I talk with artists who've each had careers spanning 60 years. This episode is with John Wolseley. Currently working from regional Victoria, John is one of Australia's most well-known landscape painters and printmakers. Moving to Australia from England in 1976, he's known for immersing himself in an environment before painting it, capturing landscapes ranging from the mountains in Tasmania to wetlands and rivers to the floodplains of Arnhem Land. In this conversation, John and I talk about his childhood and youth and how he came of age when England was coming out of World War II. We also talk about what it takes for a landscape to capture his attention and how he balances an environmental awareness in his work without being too didactic. And finally, John tells us what changes and what doesn't change over a 60-year practice and whether he feels optimistic about the future. And before we hear from John, a very big thank you to our sponsor for this series, Leonard Joel Auctioneers and Valuers, based in Melbourne and Sydney. You would have come at age at a time in England when the country was just coming out of World War II. What was that upbringing like? And was there time and space for art at that moment? I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm, I'm being silly. But it was 80 years ago. So, yes, being in the garden on the farm where I was brought up and hearing the bombers that had dropped bombs on London returning to Germany overhead. But then, when I was seven years old, I was sent to a school right on the other side of England. My mother had died when I was five. I was sent to this terrible prep school, which was actually later closed down because of the cruelty to the boys. So when I was there, I longed for the woods and ponds and streams. And so I'd I'd say that I've spent the last 60 years yearning for that secret landscape. It was the one that I'd been torn torn away from. So that that lost domain, that, that place was where my mother's family had lived since 1150. So there, I was stuck there with, with my father, who was a painter. And so I started off painting when I was ever so small to try and impress him. I was also drawing all the the, the actual marvellous lolloping hills, and this is on the edge of Exmoor, and all the snakes and reptiles and insects, and I, I, I haven't stopped. You spoke of an interview once of your mum passing and how that left you free to wander through the hills and the meadows and the forest. And you said, I sort of learnt to work within nature where I was this funny little boy who almost became a lizard or a fox. And I, and I mean, it sounds, it sounds kind of amusing and idyllic, but it also sounds kind of lonely. Yeah, yes, I, I suppose it was. My father employed about 29 different carers or, or nannies so I, I was quite lonely in the sense that I was running away from them. But I suppose it was there that I made such contact with the actual, the, the nature of the place. I think that it was those times as a little boy moving within the natural world 
that's what my painting is really about. So those kinds of reflections, I feel like maybe they're the kinds of reflections that are easier to have with time and with distance. But was it something that you were aware of when you were younger? Yeah, yes, I, I was. And when I got to Australia and spent an awful lot of time wandering amongst the dunes of the Simpson Desert or up in Arnhem Land, in a sort of funny way, I was looking for the same kinds of landscape or I knew how to negotiate myself in the landscape. Yes, so what you say about time in relationship to this, is that, that's very interesting. I think this relates to that what I went on to do when I grew up was that th- that farm uh, w- we turned into a kind of hippie commune, a commune of artists and musicians and sort of permaculture, sort of farming. So I, I continued working within the landscape. Then I'd do, do sort of mad things like I'd plough a whole field and then at five o'clock in the afternoon I'd paint the meadows that I'd ploughed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you if being an artist seemed like an impossible thing in the 1950s, but I suppose with your dad being a painter, you, you had some kind of role model there in your life already? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I suppose with some of these podcasts, you are asking, aren't you, um, what art there was in the house when they were children? Mm-hmm. Yes. A lot of artists I know often say, well, there's actually nothing. There might not even have been a bloody book. No, no, that's actually, that's the more common answer, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, what was good for me was that my father had been a painter all his life, and he he had me when he was quite old, and so he had lots of paintings by his friends and they were artists in what was called the Newland School in Cornwall. There were some pretty fabulous artists. So I see all that, and then I see all his paintings. But the disadvantage to that, well, the advantage was that I really learned an awful lot about that kind of figurative painting. But the disadvantage was that my father, when I started to be more experimental, well, he, he was an alcoholic as well, and he, he would look across the, the table at me and he'd say, how could a son of mine paint that horrible modern rubbish? That went on for a certain amount of time. Then I actually did run off and do printmaking and etching at, uh, in Paris for, for two years to get away, get away from him. I mean, that... When you studied in Paris and even when you studied in England, I mean, you studied at some quite prestigious schools and you must have shown such great technical talent when you were young, I imagine. I, I, I sometimes wonder about that. It's quite funny, isn't it? I think that the intriguing thing is that artists who ha- have got great technical gifts, as Picasso said he had, sometimes it's a disadvantage. But it's quite true that the art schools in those days like St. Martin's Art School or the Byron Shaw School of Art that I went to, one did learn to draw and and become a very expert. And you would have been studying and painting, you know, largely for most of your life, I guess, at a time when the art world really did centre conceptual art above everything else. 
Did that make you feel self-conscious that you were a landscape painter? I think the answer is, is, is yes. But another answer is that in England then, painting land itself did become rather conceptualist. A lot of my friends stopped calling themselves landscape painters and they said they were land artists. All those, these arty communes that I've been talking about and things like Findhorn and permaculture and, and then the land artists like Richard Long and Hamish Fulton. It was around then that I commenced doing myself big projects which were involved painting single paintings, but there were also installations which were like my, the first one I did. The exhibition was called A Journey Down the Dordogne River in a Collapsible Boat. <laughs> moving away from being conceptual. And, and it was that time that I kept on telling people that I wasn't a landscape artist and that I was an inscape artist. Mm. <laughs> so when I got to Australia in 1976, I was, su was surprised to find that painting land was considered pretty passe. You know, the, the idea that you might be painting landscape, you were regarded as being... Very old-fashioned. But it was, it was quite funny coming here in 76 because at the same time as landscape painting was considered passe, the greatest painters of lands that Australia has produced, the Aboriginal artists, were not appreciated or bought by Australians either. You know, the, this was the time of Panya and um, Geoffrey Barden, and I was up there. At, at that time. And so it was completely amazing to me that those paintings were all bought by Americans and European buyers. Yeah, you just didn't feel like Australians showed too much interest in the landscape at that time? No, they don't. Actually, there's a rather ni nice article about John Nixon, the artist who sadly passed away, in the paper last weekend by Doug Hall. And he may makes the point that People like John Nixon painted non-figurative, exciting paintings almost as a revolt against the fact that landscape painting in Australia, they really were rather a lot of people who had been rather good, like Boyd or Nolan or all those, uh, but who, who were now doing rather weak work. That, that was interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think it's also interesting that you moved to Australia in 1976 at a time when so many artists were fleeing the country. Like I know John Nixon went and spent a bit of time in England. So I'm curious why you made the move to Australia. I've got about four answers to that. Okay. And I've, I've actually almost forgotten. <laughs> People always ask me that. But I suppose the main reason was that the land and the earth and the ecology in England was so damaged, the extent to which insects and reptiles and were become, becoming extinct, and that the industrial farming was having such an appalling effect, that I, I wanted to go to a country where I could see the landscape and I could see the inscape or in-stress of the landscape, and so that when I got here, and I shot off pretty early up to the centre and in the north, 
you could actually see the bones of the landscape. And you could see uh, ecologies which were firing away. And you often immerse yourself in an environment or a landscape and you get to know it before painting it. What does it take for a certain landscape to captivate you enough to paint it? Yes, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult one. I think that I find all, all bits of land totally fascinating. But I think what captivates me is how can I understand it and how can I make it work? An example of this might be that I spent nine years doing work up at the Bukulange Art Centre in East on land. And a lot of it's been with, some of it has been working on the same things as Mulkan Wapanda, the great ceremonial leader and artist. It all started when we, we did, she started painting all the edible plants. And what is so wonderful was that I, I'd be trying to do the same thing. I, I suppose uh, a way of answering your question would be to say that there I was w- watching how she engaged with the landscape and how she painted it. You said you see yourself as a hybrid mix of artist and scientist. What did you mean by that? I suppose the best way of describing that would be to go back to where I did my training, as it were, in Paris in 1959, 60, 61. Because where I was, was the printmaking atelier set up by Stanley Hayter, and he printed for all the surrealists. And so when I, when I was there, Wonderful things would happen, like um, he'd say, oh, well, I'd like you to paint, help me. There's a Spanish artist coming in this weekend, and would you help me? And so, so Miro turned up. I didn't know he was Miro. And I, <laughs> I helped him and, and, and things like that. And then Max Ernst came. I actually heard Peter and Max Ernst talking about how Max Ernst in, in first invented frottage, but the the main thing about Hayter was that he was a scientist, and the way he taught us was a, 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 lot, a lot about how materials work in a scientific way, as, as well as in a image-making way. I then went back to England and studied agriculture, and I came first in the land use and grass and management scientific bit. And then I suppose I went on being quite scientific in the, in the, in the way that I was painting the, all of these insects and land forms and, and geology and uh, got into the habit of buying lots of books and, and being a rather faux scientist. There's, um, there's such a great environmental awareness in your work. And I wonder, does that stem from an empathy with nature or a curiosity or wonder? And then how do you kind of conceive of that relationship between the artist and the landscape? I think that one way of answering that might be to go back to when I was living on that commune and I was very much influenced, as so many of us were back then, by Eastern mysticism and Eastern thought. 
My approach to landscape has always been far more influenced by the great Chinese landscape artists. There was the kind of thing that I'd be studying artists like, or the, the great thinkers like Lao Tzu or Chong Zhu. And the painting landscape for them, and a lot of us who were so affected by them, I mean, I'm thinking of Ian Fairweather or Toby or Greaves, who describe painting as meditation, even as prayer. So I'm here going a long way, aren't I, from the English landscape tradition. So that the things like, I'm trying to remember the wonderful Tuong Zhu, he said something like, when the mind is in repose, in meditation, it becomes a mirror of the universe. I take all that in, and he was also, he, he, him who described, there was a nice phrase he had, he described the artist as a person who takes off his clothes and sits cross-legged. <laughs> and, and so later I did an awful lot of that. <laughs> um, but I think absolutely primarily, this kind of thing was central to Suzanne. You see, when I was sort of 20 to 30, Suzanne was our god. And now when I, when I look back on it, and now when I read the kind of things he says, I realize how far away most artists have got away, have gone from the idea that by looking at nature, you were trying to reveal things like the Tao or the, or the way of nature or the things like cosmic principles so that when, when Dero Cezanne wrote, the truth is in nature, and I shall prove it, the, at that time we, we, we all absolutely took that on. And what fascinates me now is that very few artists actually do think they can do something as important as that. You know, how, how many artists have said to you, I tell you, Gianni, uh, <laughs> the truth is in nature. And I shall prove it. <laughs> I mean, you know, not many people say that, but I feel like is that kind of the fantasy or, or the belief that you have to have to be able to put paint on a material? No, I, I don't think it's, you have to have it to put paint on the material. And I would say that vast numbers of, talking about easel painting, vast number of artists are putting a lot of paint on, on material, but they simply do not have the belief that what they're doing is very, very important. Where I come from is that I would, the artists I really admire, let's say Cezanne or let's say Turner. It seems to me that Turner, as a landscape artist, has actually shown the world, revealed to the world, the power of nature and the importance of nature in, in the most incredible way. Like, it, 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 the artists have taught us how to look and understand where, where we are. You see, where I'm finding it so engaging is, is to find that artists don't actually believe you can do that. It this bears to, to what I think that artists who paint landscape are concerned with now, and that is that we are terribly, terribly important because we can actually show people how nature works how the the great flow of nature works and how, if it's 
doesn't work and we mess it up so much that it'll all collapse. See, we, funny old artists out there in the bush, we, we can actually see that global warming is a lot worse than any of us thought, even a year ago. And the fact that the world, the powers that be, are doing nothing about it is, is just so devastating. Yeah, yeah. I'm having a rant, aren't I? <laughs> I mean, when you're kind of... I get that sense of taking what you do so importantly. Is there a risk sometimes, especially when you know there is an ecological concern in the work? Do you ever get worried about being didactic in the work? And is that something you have to curb in the painting? Oh, I've, I've, I've spent a, a huge amount of time worrying about that uh, because the fascinating thing is that the artists who do work about climate change, it's absolutely fascinating how when you look at the paintings, you sense that you are being preached at and you've already got rather a lot of echo fatigue, as they call it, and you, you have a job looking at the painting to see whether the, the painting is saying things about the really deep down important things which art can do. And so I've actually stopped being as didactic as I was. I did a huge number amounts of work trying to stop people felling the growth forests and various things. And now what I like to say, say is that all an artist can do and should do is try and reveal and show the power of nature and how it works. And that, that at least might go some way to help people to actually see what's happening. And when you're trying to do that, you're known as being quite theatric and a bit of a storyteller. Do you find that those aspects of your personality help with the painting? Yes, I, I think so. I, I think that the performative aspect of art is pretty fascinating, isn't it? But especially now, when people don't don't see your paintings, or not, not very often, and especially now with COVID, I think that it really is important for artists to, to beguile and excite the public. Yes. And I suppose, you know, there must be a fine balance between exciting people and then sort of not having to feel like you're degrading your painting just simply to excitement. Yes, yes. And that's the same too, is that a good artist must try not to paint paintings in order to sell them or in order to be liked. But I do have quite a strong remnant of my socialist upbringing in that I I actually do feel that artists should be revealing and telling people the deep down truths that I've been muttering on about, rather than painting, trying to be more and more avant-garde. It, it seems to me that the art schools are so often training students to be absolutely cutting edge and push on. We've got got to a stage where modern art ha has lost its public to such a large degree 
seems to be such a problem. I, I do think that so many artists are sort of sh- showing off and, and trying to please their peers, and th- th- they don't actually spend enough time seeing how many people do respond to what, what they do. Not that they should uh, paint in order to impress the general public. I'd, I'd like to give an example of that, and that is that up here in the Whipsteep Forest, I've been painting a lot of paintings and drawings about beet- the beetle tracks and the tracks of different larvae in, in wood under the bark. So I'm, I'm doing lots and lots of paintings in which I have made rubbings of these. Now, when my friend who delivers the wood, uh, he, he comes in and he, I show him all the paintings I've done by rubbing his blocks of wood. He, he simply loves it. And all that kind of work, which is actually based on real nature, my neighbors here are all alike. Do you know where I'm going? I'm not saying that we should all be social realists in the Chinese style. No, no, that makes sense. I have one final question because I know I've kept you for quite a while. And it's a question I put to both Gareth Sansom and Wendy Stavrianos. And it was that when you have a practice of 60 years, does your approach or ideas change as the decades change? Or do some things really remain quite fundamental? I I, I sometimes do think think of that because I I do think an awful lot of um, artists of my age have got stuck quite a long way, way back. I remember Mark Chagall saying somewhere, I'm not name dropping, he didn't say to me, uh, but I, I, I I did see him in a cafe once. Uh, but Chagall uh, said um, something like, Art, uh, old artists should be careful not to let moss grow on them. Mm. <laughs> uh, uh, it was more like we must, we must be careful not to let one's work be covered with moss. And somebody said to me, quite, quite no, I think actually it, they didn't say it to me. <laughs> Uh, Picasso said. (laughs) (laughs) That would be nice. (laughs) Yeah. Something. I did shake hands with Picasso, by the way, but that's that's sorry. But um, uh, Picasso said that a good artist is is someone who lives and works rather like they were following a tree. And so they start at the bottom and they go up the trunk and then they go off on a branch. And they go right to the end of the branch but where, and, and do really interesting work following that kind of branch approach. But then they, what they've got to do is um, they must go back to the main trunk and then go off on another branch and then, then, and then repeat it. But it seems to me that that's a, a, a rather nice metaphor for... Well, for me, it's a nice metaphor for how I feel I've done. And so now, for instance, I'm quite a long way up that tree trunk, and I'm now going off on another branch, which is actually to do a lot more actual oil painting. And that's been rather extraordinary because I find I'm doing things which have a relation to the 
branches right long way down. So that I'm, I'm doing some of these paintings that I've done for Earth Canvas, this show in Albury, really do have, have a strange synchrony with the ones in them that I did six years ago. So that process of intuitively adapting and changing and with your environmental concern, and I guess coupled with the fact that the world has changed a lot since when you first started and the environmental circumstances do feel more dire now, does that leave you, do you feel optimistic as an artist? I think it has actually, we inscape artists, that whole process of ageing has changed in the last 10 years. I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm, when you say, does it make me feel optimistic the way I've been doing things, uh, I think that uh, it's changed in that I now look out on the landscape that we're talking in now or I'm talking to you, and I, I can see the, the way as it, it's, it's changing far faster than we ever thought. So that when I first came here uh, 40 years ago, I often used to think, oh, the, those early other white people who went in and painted, I used to think they were finding the, the first example of this animal, that reptile. And then here was I, here was I uh, then in, in 1976, and since painting the last one, like I, I've got a collection of butterflies that I made early on in Europe, and quite a lot of them are, are now extinct. So, in answer to your question, it, it, it really is very different. So, so we inscape artists are hitting or come across something which is um, completely weird and and one can't feel very optimistic about it. Right. So in terms of, I guess, uh, not, to, not to be dramatic, but I guess, you know, the future of the world, you don't feel optimistic? Well, I was having a completely wicked thought this morning when I walked through the forest towards my studio. The sp spring flowers are coming out, just a mass of gorgeous and then I was thinking of all the ter terribly sad things that are happening with COVID in, in, the, in the rest of the world. And then I was thinking, well, perhaps I am feeling optimistic, or these flowers make me feel optimistic, that the great surge and symphony of, of nature will go on, but we humans have probably ruined our place in it, and uh, and uh, and are going to almost die out. But I'm sort of excited that the rest of the natural world will go on. Do you know what I'm I'm trying to say? What's happening now is is appalling from the point of view of us human beings. But for the rest of the creatures that live on this earth, I am am optimistic that that will go on. And that was John Wellesley for the third episode of The Long Run. You can listen back to the first episode with Gareth Sansom and the second with Wendy Stavrianos. You can also subscribe to the Archive podcast on iTunes and Spotify, or otherwise listen at Archive Online, where you can keep up to date with art-related news, articles and features from across the country.